This is Israeli Technology Founders Speak, a podcast of conversations with successful Israeli high-tech and biotech entrepreneurs, hosted by me, Barack Holman. Dr. Mike Hammer, a U.S. patent attorney and partner at JMB Davis Ben David, holds a PhD in molecular genetics and cell biology from the University of Chicago and has helped numerous inventors, startup founders, and business owners protect their innovations and secure their IP rights. Me, Barack Holman, the marketing director at JMB Davis Ben David, sat down with Mike to discuss when startups should begin the IP process, when to or not to pursue a patent, the biggest mistakes businesses make regarding patenting, tips for startup founders, and much more. This podcast is a creation of J.M.B. Davis Ben David, an intellectual property law firm serving clients around the world. You have great innovations. We keep them safe. It's not enough to just have a great startup idea or innovation. If you don't legally protect your innovations, products, and brand, anyone can claim them as their own. We keep your great innovation secure. Learn more by going to jmbdavis.com. That's jmbdavis.com. A lot of businesses, when they start off, they probably don't have a budget for IP. And it's not something that they're thinking about. You know, they're focused on the product. They might be thinking of marketing. They might be thinking of all the money they're going to make, money that they have to raise. So at what point should a company specifically a startup, start strategizing their IP? From the beginning. From the beginning. It, it, it's difficult because resources are limited. And it's difficult because time is limited and resources are limited. And who wants to pay a patent attorney? <laughs> you want to pay your, your scientists. You want to pay your business development people. You want to be out there talking to potential partners, potential investors, because there are other things which you want to be. The, the money at that, at that stage of a company, of course, is precious. Time is precious. But at that stage of, an, of a company, especially a startup, especially a technology company, the major asset that you have is your technology. And before you've actually done any experiments or before you've actually developed prototypes, one of the best representations of your technology to the world, to a potential investor, might actually be a well-written, well-thought-out patent application. The other piece to that is, in order to feel completely comfortable at talking to a new, uh, to a potential investor, you often do want to have a patent application on file. And and that's not to say that having the patent applications, the be-all and end-all of representing what your technology looks like, but sometimes it's, it can be very freeing. A lot of companies rely on non-disclosure agreements. It's the first thing you do, right? You're going to go speak to somebody and you say, okay, sign an NDA so that, you know, I know that I can trust you. Trust is a funny thing. NDAs are a funny thing. If you know the people that you're going to be speaking to, if you know that they have a rep- rep- reputation, it's not such a bad thing to rely on that NDA. And then as you develop your technology, you can file your patent application a little bit later. If you don't know the person, if you, that person doesn't have a reputation, or if you really are truly afraid that that person is going to not deal evenly with you and not deal honestly with you, then it really is essential then to have the patent application on file. All that is 
kind of cart before the horse sort of thing. All of that is saying, well, we're talking about patent applications, but really what I'm talking about is planning. Really what I'm talking about is thinking about, well, what is your technology? A phrase that I think of sometimes that I wish people would do is less patenting and more inventing <laughs> because it's more important to have a great invention than to have a flashy patent application. Mm-hmm. By what I mean a flashy patent application, you can have 100 pages of fluff. You have, can have 100 pages of nothing, which may look good to an investor who doesn't know any better. But as soon as that investor's patent attorney themselves is going to check out what you're actually doing, they'll see right through it and they'll see that there's really nothing there. So even before all of those other things which I said, I think it's really important to know what your invention is and plan out how that invention is going to fit in with the technology that you're building and how that then fits in with the patent application, which is going to be that first, in a way, public representation of your technology, of what your startup is is meant to do. So is there a quick and easy way to protect your invention without going for a full patent? Probably not. Um, the, the, there are all types of provisional patent applications or all types of first patent applications that people will file. And you'll, I just use the phrase provisional patent application, which is a, a flavor, if you will, of patent application that you can file in the United States. And for many companies, that is their first patent application. What makes a provisional patent application attractive is because there are very few formal requirements to it. It doesn't get examined. It stays secret. And then after a year, if you haven't moved forward with that technology, if you haven't done the experiments to support that application, or you don't have any financial interest or investors who want to support that technology, or if that technology doesn't really become part of what your, your company is all about, you can forget about it and it stays secret. It never goes anywhere. And you can file anything as a provisional patent application. I can take a little piece of paper, scrawl my name on it, scan it into a computer, file that with a patent office in the United States, and I'll get a filing date for that little piece of paper. But it gives me nothing. I was just going to say, what's that worth? Nothing. Zero. So why would somebody do that? There are companies, and I have seen this, who will say, okay, I want to file a provisional patent application and what they want to file, and they don't want to pay for anything else. They don't want to spend the time or the energy or the resources or the effort in developing anything else. They want to file a one-page summary of what they're doing. And just like that little slip of paper with my name scrolled on it, it's worthless. Maybe it's a little bit. It's worth a little bit more than... (laughs) Then my my name scrawled on a piece of paper, but doesn't provide a foundation that a patent attorney would look at and say, okay, this is the foundation for an invention. This is the foundation of what you're going to need to actually gain this property right over this slice of technology that you're developing. It's just a summary. It really is just an idea if you file that type of, of document. And they're all types, there's everything in between that one pager all the way up to a hundred page document or more, which isn't fluff, which really is a well-written, fully drafted patent application, which is in reality no different than what you would file if you wanted that to be examined. I think that best practice is to file something which is that that well-developed, that well-thought-out 
And if you have the experiments, if you have the initial data, if you have the initial prototypes or well thought out and detailed drawings, you should put that into your patent application. Because again, this is the first public representation of your technology. This is a major asset which shows this is my technology and I value it. I value it enough to, to put in the time and the effort and the resources into developing this potential property right. And when you show that to an investor and your investor says, okay, so what's your technology all about? And you explain and you say, oh, and by the way, I've articulated this. I've set this all out in this patent application. And we're planning on during the, the one year lifespan of this provisional patent application, developing this idea further, getting more data to support it, all those things which are going to make this provisional patent application into a, a well thought out, well supported document that is going to be examined in whatever patent office around the world that you want it. Do people sometimes patent the wrong invention? And then as they're developing their business, they realize, oh, that wasn't what we really needed to patent. This was it. Yeah, for sure. But wrong is, is a, a funny word. Instead of it being wrong, it may just be not the fit for what they're doing not the fit for where their company is heading. It can still become an asset, actually. If a company continues on with a patent application, even if it's not exactly the the technology which they're pursuing, but that the technology which is written in that patent application is valuable technology, it's still an asset. It's still something which is, that your company could potentially license out to a third party. So even if it's not something which you're going to be developing further, it's something that somebody else might want to develop further, but they then need to do the property right which you've gained through your patent application. Let's say a company has several innovations or inventions. Can they make one patent that covers them all? Definitely. The difficulty with that is then convincing a uh, patent office somewhere around the world to examine them all at the same time. So the efficiency that you gain by lumping everything into a single bucket you may lose because a patent examiner, say in the USPTO, will say, I'm not going to examine all of these at the same, all of these inventions at the same time. They're different inventions. I need to do different examinations, different searches. And so you need to choose. You need to pick one to start with. The advantage to having everything lumped together increases exponentially the more that those different inventions are related to each other. And it, at some point, it crosses the line between being an advantage to being necessary. The difference between something which is an advantage to something which is being necessary, to my mind, is if you have two inventions that are in the same patent application, and they're so fundamentally related to each other that if they were in separate patent applications and they were filed on separate days, it may become a problem one to the other. Uh, during examination. And that's a, a judgment that a patent attorney can make for you. At that point, you want to lump them together and, and file it all together. Is there a reason that a company would not want to file for a patent? There are certain types of technologies that many companies do want to keep as trade secrets. And many of the clients who I speak with, or many of the companies who I've done due diligence for or are reviewing their their uh, portfolios for. That's definitely a question which I ask, which is, 
Well, I see you've, you've have patent applications on the following subjects, but it seems like there's a gap there. And, and why not? And they say, well, we want to keep it a secret. Often, very often, if I turn the question around a different way and say, is there anything that you are going to keep a secret? The answer is invariably manufacturing because there are tricks. Uh, you know, back when I was in the lab, you would get a scientific pro, you know, a protocol to carry out some sort of an experiment, whether it's isolating a certain type of protein or isolating DNA or whatever. And if you just took that written page and followed the instructions, maybe you would get it right. Maybe you would get the product that you wanted. But if you got that written page and then did that procedure with somebody who knew exactly the way that it worked and knew exactly the way you were supposed to, to carry these steps out, then the, the chances of success were much greater. It's the same thing with manufacturing, because if you don't have those tricks of the trade, then even if you're off patent or even if you know, somebody is able to reverse engineer your technology, they may not be able to reverse engineer the way that your technology is, is actually implemented or actually produced. And so those, those manufacturing steps can become extremely important. And many, many companies keep those as a, as a trade secret. So it's interesting what you just mentioned now, that you can reverse engineer an invention. So how does a patent protect you from somebody reverse engineering your invention? Because you tell you're not reverse engineering an invention because you don't, someone doesn't need to reverse engineer an invention because you're telling them how to make and use their invention. Uh -huh. In the patent. In the patent. Them, exactly. Right. So if they do it slightly different, the patent doesn't cover that? Depends upon the claims. And now, now I'm, I'm feel a little sheepish because I always say that if you're talking to a patent attorney and they've been speaking for longer than then three minutes and they haven't used the word claims, you should run out of the room. Okay. And I, and here we are, we've been talking <laughs> yeah. for, for several minutes now. And, and this is the first time I've used the word claims. And I didn't run out of the room. <laughs> claims are the, absolutely the most important part of any patent application and any patent because that is the property right. It doesn't really matter. It, it matters a whole lot what you have written in the rest of the, the patent application and the rest of the patent. But legally, the property right which you gain from the patent is embodied in these words that are at the end of the patent that we call claims. And what you just said now is, well, can somebody do this a little differently and still be covered by the patent? Or can they do that free and clear and not have to worry about the patent? That all depends upon how broad or how narrow the claim language is. You can get a very broad claim, which will cover all the, these little variations on your invention, whether it's a different material or whether it's a different type of procedure or whether a different temperature, if you have a certain process, all those different variations that go in, into an invention. And that might be covered by the claim language. The other side of it as well, if a patent office or a patent examiner is only willing to grant you a very narrow claim saying what you've invented is new and non-obvious and well-described and you're showing me that it works and it's just, you're showing me this great secret sauce that does all these amazing things, but you can only get this property right for these very specific conditions. That's a narrow claim and, and you're right. Somebody might be able to, to get around you, to invent around you, um, invent around the language which is in the claims. 
Can you file a patent by yourself online without an attorney? Yeah, you can. I can so, file my taxes online also, but I wouldn't do it. Yeah, so that was my follow-up question. So what would be the advantage of having an attorney to file your patent as opposed to doing it online by yourself? We're trained to take technology depending upon our technology background. My background's in, in, in molecular genetics and biotech is, is my background. I'm trained to take that science and filter it through a set of legal principles, which I've been trained to use and trained to apply to the way that technology is then embodied in this document we call a patent application. And then to work with a patent examiner to get the, the property right that, that our clients are, are looking for. And it will give them the, the most amount of value that we can. That's not trivial. It looks like it's trivial because many patent applications look very similar to many other patent applications. And there are a lot of smart people <laughs> in this field. There are a lot of smart entrepreneurs. There are a lot of smart people who are developing technology. And they might say, well, why can't I just copy this chunk of, of text from that patent application and that chunk of text. And you're right. You can do that. But like I said, the scope of your protection is going to always boil down to how your claims are written and getting that all to sync up the language of the claims, the description in the patent application, what you need to, in your patent application to support the claims whether it's a type of experiment or whether it's a detail in a drawing, all of those things that a patent attorney knows how to do and what to do. Yeah, you know, I have a friend who sort of knows how to fix his, his clothes dryer and he did it. And yeah, his clothes dryer does run and it does spin and it heats up. But when he opens up the door, it keeps spinning <laughs> and it keeps running and the clothes keep shooting out of, of the, the door. It would, to me, it would be the same thing if I tried to do my own taxes. And I think it's the same thing if many, when many inventors try and file their own patent applications. It's, it's one thing which, which we sometimes absolutely have to deal with. And somebody does exactly, exactly that. They file their own application and then something goes wrong. And then they come to us and they say, help me. We, we, you know, something, something went wrong and, and I'm having a hard time with the patent office. And sometimes the, there are, these are things that we can fix, and sometimes they're not. If somebody's building a business and they're putting the amount of time and money and effort into building, especially a biotech startup or something like that, and you file your own patent, it's kind of like doing surgery on yourself. I mean, surgery on yourself would be stupid, but <laughs> here you're putting so much effort into something, and really without that protection, it's just exposing your whole business. So if you're going to put all that money and effort into it, really, you need to put the effort into getting a proper patent. Correct. What's frustrating from this side of things is that the value of any particular patent application, any particular patent is unknown at this early stage. Uh, I was once speaking to a, a colleague actually in Munich, and he said that he never had problems or he never had questions about the value of what he was doing with some of his clients because he only dealt with uh, litigation. He only dealt with, with questions about when there, you know, there was a possible infringement of his client's patents. And at that point, his clients knew exactly how much value was, uh, was in each, each of, of the, the patents, which was um, part of this dispute. It's hard to know. It really is hard to know, but I think 
exactly like you said, if you are putting this much into your, your business and your major asset is this patent application as an embodiment of your technology, it's, it's not, not a great idea to skimp on it. It would seem to me that patents have like a bad name. You know, they're not, yeah. they're not very attractive. Not at all. They just seem so boring. You know, that's something I'll do down the line. Even what worse. Do- even worse. It's not, it's not even that it's, they're boring or down the line. There, there is definitely a, a philosophy that says that they're harmful. They're harmful. Yeah. How yeah. so? So there, so because you're, what you're doing is you're monopolizing technology, which then people can't freely use. And so there, you know, there are several ways of looking at this. You could say, well, I understand why you need to file a patent application because as a, a tiny startup company, you need to file this patent application because if I don't file the patent application, if I don't get this property right, it's going to be very difficult to raise the necessary money to further develop the invention which I'm, I'm developing. That's a, that's the core technology of my company. And using this patent application, you can, and the patent which you can get from it, you can leverage that property right into investment and into the, the type of, of financing that's necessary really to get the technology off the ground and to turn it from, from an idea or something that has some laboratory basis into an actual product or something which can really change the world potentially. That's one way of looking at it. And I think that that is for the most part, especially in biotech, that's the way the world works. It takes money to develop a lot of these things. And you are not going to get that money unless your investors have some sort of surety, some, some sort of insurance that they're, they're going to get some sort of uh, return on their investment. And you get that by, by having this, you know, 20 year monopoly on the technology. The other view of it is, well, there are certain technologies which, you know, why, why should anybody have a property right to it? In the United States, at least this, this, surfaced in the battles over medical diagnostics, right, with the BRCA1, BRCA2 medical diagnostic kits and other medical diagnostics where it went all the way to the Supreme Court and there were several biotech-related and other other technology-related cases where this public feeling that patents were actually harming the development of technology and harming the access of technology to the public this developed into a narrowing of what's available to be patented. And it's, it's, has actually caused some difficulty for certain types of tech, of companies. And this has been going on for, for 10 years now, 10 years, 10 plus years now. So that's, that's another viewpoint. The people who at the time were saying, well, patents are a bad thing. They're very happy. <laughs> they're very, very happy because Yes, there are certain technologies which is now more difficult to get this monopoly for. But the people who d- develop those those types of of technologies have have felt that well, this actually has limited the type of investment that you can get to develop those technologies. Are you talking about like medications that cost these crazy amounts of money? So you know, like five hundred thousand dollars a year for, and it's the only medication out there to save this person's life. Is it? So you know, there's that. Mm-hmm. I get that. I'm not saying there isn't something there, and it's a very difficult issue in the sense of, well, 
the system is built so that you get this property right, it's a monopoly for 20 years, and during that 20-year period, you should be able to exploit that property right to the degree possible. At the same time, I think that there is something to be said for if there is a life-saving technology, which is the only life-saving technology which is out there, um, that companies that charge way more than it took to develop the technology and to make a profit, but charge way more than that, in the end, it hurts everybody. And this may be me being pie-in-the-sky optimist, but I think that that it that really does hurt everybody if they're charging that much for these technologies, because in the end, it circles back and you get public opinion, which is very much against patenting in general. And once the pendulum swings that way, then it becomes more difficult to get those life-saving technologies because it becomes more difficult to get a patent on those life-saving technologies. Personally, and again, this is this is completely detached from some of what I do, of course, but personally what I feel is we would all be a whole lot better off if, if we all thought holistically in a sense of, of how everything is connected, how the, the development of technology is absolutely necessary and is critical to so many people and and they're they're you know just thrive as living beings on this planet. And the development of it is critical to the livelihood of many companies, many startups. But the over exploitation of it in the end isn't good for anyone. So what would the world look like if we didn't have patents? I think that it would depend upon whether or not there would be somebody. They would requ- they were you would still require the 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 money. You still need the money to develop. But as soon as you develop something, somebody else would just take it. Yeah. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the U.S. Constitution gives the right in the United States for patents. And the exact words are to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. What does this mean, promoting the progress? This is the bestowing on Congress of the ability to make to pass laws to create this patent right. Same thing for copyright for the arts to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Promoting the progress of science, according to the U.S. Constitution, requires this patent right. It requires the ability to capture this technology in a material that we call a patent that is used to create value for companies. And in creating the value for these companies, they're able to, to develop this technology. The other side of it, though, And the other really important part of this, which I think many startups don't like to hear, is that patent right is what, you know, it's a quid pro quo. There has to be an exchange. So in the United States, Congress says, we're going to give you this this patent right. But the requirement for the patent right is that you tell us what you did. And this comes back to your question from before about reverse engineering. You got to tell somebody what you did in order to get the patent right. And that's when, before when I was talking about sufficient disclosure, that you have to develop your idea and you have to put enough in your your patent application to support the claims, that's this disclosure. That's the quid pro quo, the free exchange from the inventor to society. That also promotes progress in science and the useful arts, because I got a great idea. I'm going to tell you about that great idea. You're going to give me a monopoly on that great idea. But in my telling you what that great idea is, 
somebody else out there may take a look at it and say, hey, that's a great idea. And now I'm going to take that great idea one step further. And in doing so, we promote progress. And I think that there is something very powerful there. And that's inextricably linked to the patent right. It's completely entangled in the patent system. That's what it was. That's the way that it was designed at its best. And there's, there's the pie in the sky optimism there. At its best, that's what the patent, and that's what patents and patenting is designed to do. So you have a 20 year window to take advantage of this protection of a patent. Mm -hmm. Are there companies that after 20 years or before 20 years, they re-patent, you know, they take an invention, slightly improve it, patent it again, and keep it away from everybody else so that just keeps going and going and going? Try, but there's got to be an invention. Um, The phrase is evergreening. Okay. (laughs) And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, If you have a, a pharmaceutical which in its original form can do uh, provide a certain benefit. And then the company is going to spend its hard-earned and hard-won research and development dollars into improving on that pharmaceutical or reformulating that pharmaceutical so they can continue to have, you know, they can then file a new patent application on that pharmaceutical in a different formulation, in an improved formulation and try and continue their patent right. But they're not going to get the claim. You're not going to be able to get that monopoly unless there's an invention there. That goes back to that other thing I was saying. Mm-hmm. It's better to be to be doing less patenting and more inventing. And people may say that evergreening is a bad thing. I, I wouldn't even call it evergreening. It's just inventing. Keep inventing. That's, that's a great thing. That's the good thing. What are the biggest mistakes you've seen businesses make regarding patents? Not owning them. What, what does that mean? It's a property right, and a business needs to make sure that they own their property. I can write you a gorgeous patent application. I can get you amazing claims that are so broad that no one's ever going to be able to invent around them. And I can actually get that for you quickly if we put enough quarters into the machine of the U.S. Patent Office quickly enough, and we can get that through examination real fast, and I can get those claims for you. But if you don't own that property right, if somebody infringes you and then you try and assert it in court, you're not going to be able to because you need to be the owner of the patent. Another way of saying that is if I'm a startup company who part of their technology is licensed from somebody else, whether it's another inventor or whether it's a university or whether it's an institute, research institute, that startup company needs to make sure that all of the rights, all of the property rights in that technology, um, whether it's patented or not patented, is flowing to the company so that that company has the rights in the invention. The biggest mistake that I've seen is not buttoning that up tightly and thoroughly from the earliest stages because it's not flashy. An assignment or a contract is talk about boring. <laughs> inventor X, for good and sufficient consideration, Inventor X gives the rights in the invention to company Y. And then there's a bunch of other boilerplate language that you've seen a zillion times before. And then there are a couple of signatures at the bottom. Single sheet of paper. Incredibly boring. There's nothing sexy about it at all. And it is so important. It is more important than anything else. Hmm. Because you got to own it. That is one of the the biggest problems. The other big problem is scientists and inventors don't think the same way as patent attorneys. 
<laughs> Which is fine. And that's, that's, they probably shouldn't. They shouldn't, but people don't talk to their patent attorneys soon enough. When you're developing a technology and thinking about the types of experiments, this again, this is in many ways, this is biotech or chemistry specific, the types of experiments that you need to support your invention, it's really important to speak to your patent attorney because the types of experiments that you might do as an inventor or as a scientist, the types of questions which you might ask as an inventor or as a scientist are going to be different than the types of questions that a patent attorney will ask. More importantly, the types of questions that a patent examiner is going to ask. And the patent attorney is going to know those types of questions. And so a client may come to me and say, okay, I'm developing this this new technology and I'm running the following experiments. And I might suggest a couple of controls or a couple of extra lanes on their gel or whatever. And they're going to look at me like I'm insane, like a cold, total crazy person. And I'll say, yeah, you'll thank me for it later on because we're going to be asked about it. And if we can do that type of comparison, and if we can can show the examiner exactly what it is that I'm suggesting, your life is going to be a lot easier in the long run. Not having those conversations early during the de- development of the technology, that can produce problems. I want to talk about J.M.B. Davis, Ben David for a minute. Sure. So we're based in Israel, and you have clients in China, and in Israel, and where else do you have clients? We have clients, I'd say, everywhere from the United States to Japan, from west to east, and from as far north as Northern Europe, Germany, down to Australia, New Zealand. What advantage are you giving here that you're in Israel or the, the specialties that you bring? Why are people coming to JMB Davis, Ben David? So particularly if you're not located in the United States, our location means that we can serve as a bridge. We can serve as a bridge between locations which are to the east of us and the U.S. Patent Office. We can serve as a direct, especially for uh, United States intellectual property services, we can serve as a U.S. patent lawyer, which is much closer to you, a U.S. patent lawyer, which is in your backyard. And even if your backyard is one or two hours different, if we're talking about colleagues in Europe or in, in Central Europe or in, or in the U.K., even though China, we're talking six hours difference from, oh, at this time of year, we're, it's five hours difference. It shifts between five hours and six hours. So this time of year, it's five hours difference. Japan is six hours difference, times difference between us and them. We're in the belt. We're in between those uh those parts of the globe and the US so the advantage is that we can provide service to our clients that takes place over the course of their working day and they'll get an answer for whatever question that they might have during their working day and not have to wait for their US patent attorney to wake up the other piece of it is it's not just a question if something needs to urgently be done then we can take those instructions during our working day, take care of it during our client's working day, and let them know that it's been taken care of. There's a lot of peace of mind that comes along with that. Just today, even, I realized that there was something that we needed from a client urgently for for a, a filing that we need to do tomorrow. I was able to write to that client today. They're only a couple of hours away, and they were able to to work on getting those materials that I needed already today. There was no time lag. If I was located in New York or Chicago or 
or Seattle or Portland or LA, you can imagine exactly what kind of a time delay they would. Got it. The other advantage I think that we bring is the advantage of humanity. The USPTO has this, this, um, program called Patents for Humanity where they're wanting, they're promoting certain types of inventions and certain types of, of projects. But uh, I would flip it a little bit and say humane patenting. I think one of the other advantages of our firm is that we really try to provide a very human service. We're not a machine. We're not a factory. We interact with our clients on a very human level. And we know that it's not necessarily an easy process. Intellectual property rights, whether it's patenting or trademarks or designs, getting these rights, it's taking advantage of a machine. And one of my jobs is to try and make this machine of the patent office a little bit more accessible or a lot more accessible to our clients and to help them through that process in an understandable way and in a way that will be as painless as possible. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. That was Dr. Mike Hammer, U.S. patent attorney and a partner at JMB Davis Ben David. We hope you enjoyed this episode. There are many more to come. Do you have a great innovation or startup idea? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us by going to our website, jmbdavis.com. And if you go to jmbdavis.com forward slash startup, you'll see we have a special site specifically made for startups to help startups protect their innovations. Please be in touch with us and find out how we can help you. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to bringing you the next episode.